You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, Rena has a what? Rena's always booking these uh, obscure authors that I've never heard of, but um, we'll see how it works out. Um, actually, tonight we have two um, colleagues and friends of mine that I'm very glad to be here with. These are people who have been in the business, helped define what the business is today, the business and the art form of science fiction. So um, I wouldn't say they're old school, but they uh, definitely are part of the history of science fiction. And, yeah. <laughs> and maybe, to maybe part the of the future of it. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, uh, let's begin. Uh, our first reader is, uh, to me, he's the guy that put noir back in noir. He's a probably, a, he's probably the biggest cult author that I know of because he's very deliberately a cult author and at the same time he's a very prolific and widely known and widely respected author author of some 30 novels oh, and, <laughs> and 20 books he's also uh, worked as a songwriter he's written for blue oyster cult and he's fronted a number of bands he's um Uh, well, I won't characterize his work. Let's just say he's won the Bram Stoker Award and the International Horror Guild Award, and he's still working, and he wrote the movie The Crow, and he's um, still working the darker edges of the genre, and um, here he is, John Shirley. this thing turned on. Uh, yeah, I'm right, reading from my new novel, Sandblaster Chubbs. It's a new urban fantasy that I, I, <laughs> I got the idea somewhere. No, I'm reading a little bit of everything is broken. It's like, he wrote Sand, Sandman Slim. Uh, everything is broken is my new novel, so a little piece of it. And it's a, it is um, a kind of a near-future political allegory part, uh, and I it was I wrote it before uh, the Japanese tsunami. Um, as, as I was telling uh, my friend over here, I was looking for a disaster to fit California, and a blizzard didn't fit, and and I needed a good disaster in order to uh, point up what happens if you destroy the infrastructure and the community sense, uh, that is, if you install real Tea Party community in the town and how damaging that can be. Um, and uh, so the, the novel is a kind of Lord of the Flies of the near future, but it starts with a tsunami, more or less. And uh, I just happen to like these scenes, and so uh, I'm going to read them. Um, but uh, I, I just feel like they're inherently entertaining anyway, so even though it's part of a novel. Every, from everything is broken. Uh, the beginning of chapter three, actually. Russ was watching from the balcony. 
His dad hurried out, and Pendra was watching from the ground under the balcony. They all stared down the hillside at the wall of water, its bigness on an apocalyptic scale, its crest seeming to hang over the highway, and the street spread out below them, hanging there like a cobra poised to strike for a single second. It took him a moment to fully comprehend a tsunami. And then the wave came crashing into the town with a growl, within a rumble, within thunder, all bursting into one master roar. The ground shook with it. A wind was forced up the hill toward them, smelling of sea and petroleum. Oh, God, oh, no, Dad muttered, staring. Seeing the vast wave slam the town, Russ thought of a really big, muscular man standing in front of a miniature model of a village on a table. The man suddenly sweeping his arm into the little buildings, uh, smashing them to flinders with one sidewise uh, massive swipe, crushing one little house into the next, a giant smashing the town. Instinctively, he raised the binoculars to his eyes. It was more than Russ could take in. The Pacific Ocean had displaced the town below the hill. Every building along the beachside highway was submerged, or sucked from its foundation like plants torn up by the roots. And the wave, the word seemed inadequate. It was more like the muscular shoulders of the ocean. Lifting up, this immense surge from the deeps was changing its color as it scooped up dirt and debris, so the trough behind the wave became the color of an old bruise. Russ became aware of another sound. Uh, through the ongoing roar, a thin, many-sourced warbling and then he realized he was hearing screams. They were attenuated from here, icicle-thin, hard to hear, yet icily penetrating the malicious bellowing of the mountainous wave. And the bodies. As the wave splintered and tossed the line of boxy wooden buildings, moving on to the next row of houses, Russ saw bodies, tiny figures at this distance, flipped up as if the wave were throwing them over its shoulder like a big, vicious dog killing its way through trapped rodents. It was impossible to tell if any were still living, or if their apparent flailing was driven by the churning gray-brown element. They were just more debris, mixed in with the shattered timbers, drifting doors, whole sections of wall, furniture, cars upside down, unrecognizable objects rising and subsiding, as the wave moved on, plowing over the next street and the next, redefining shapes as it went, human artifacts liquefying into the chaos of the dirty living sea. The water went from dark brown to black with debris. The odd shapes of broken walls, panels of wood, debris that had lost all identity, merged into one grinding, irregular mass, bullying its way forward. The tsunami heaved against the hills like a football player trying to tackle a bigger man, uh, the tackler flying asunder in dirty foam. And another great wave, not quite as big but forceful, followed quickly, picking up a new flotsam, a minivan spinning like an overturned turtle, a man trying to climb onto it and slipping back into the water, vanishing in a whirlpool. Logs that had been at sea for years were hurled like javelins, crunching into the houses on the hill. Houses collapsed down into the hysterical sea with a squealing and wrenching Russ could hear even at this remove. The shattered faces of buildings disgorging furniture and people, and the wave moved onward 
upward. Dad, Russ asked suddenly, should we run? If we do, we'd be on lower ground. This is the highest ground around here. I don't think we'll need the roof. And then the entire town below their vantage was engulfed by the sea, except for a narrow peaked building close to the submerged highway where a group of people clung to the roof. The structure was on a rocky spur of land significantly higher than the rest of the buildings. The tidal wave swept over it, and a few people remained afterwards. Scores of bodies were being whipped about in the white and brown water, entwined with crackling power lines and kelp and carpets. The tsunami, grinding everything before it with blade-like pieces of what it had destroyed before, seemed to erase life as it pushed ahead. Russ felt a small blossom of hope when he made out several people climbing from the swamping debris, climbing onto a free-floating wooden two-car garage. Most down there clearly would be drowned, crushed, blenderized, but some lived, some struggled free of the vector of chaos. A mist rose from the crashing of the wave like smoke over a forest fire. Everywhere, dogs barked, birds shrieked, and the hillsides thumped and echoed with sound. And piercing through all was the persistent keening of screams. Seven blocks from the beach, Chief Tommy's motel was a squat building clinging like a barnacle on the side of the hill. Nella was in room 22, second floor, thumbing her cell phone, trying Ronnie again when the thundering and screaming and crashing started. She had been trying to get a certain someone out of her head and a certain someone back in. Buff, him she wanted out. She kept seeing Buff dying. Something terrible about a big guy like that becoming such a scared little thing and then dying miserably, like a fat puppy getting chased around and killed by a speed freak with a golf club, something she'd seen a few years before. Something else she wanted out of her head. And she wanted Ronnie Burke in. She wanted Ronnie to fill up her whole mind and fill her body and just sweep her out of where she was because he was the last guy who'd been able to do that for her. He'd been so sweet, like he really did care about her. And later he'd heard someone call her a skank, and the day after that, he didn't show up. And that was almost a month ago, and she'd sent him some text messages, but cell phones work for shit out here, and, well, sometimes they work depending on where in town you were, but not reliably like around Sacramento. And every time she thought she'd got him, almost agreeing to meet her, then the call got dropped. Nella had rented the motel room to stay in, partly to be away from Dickie Rockwell's bunch and partly to shack up with Ronnie if he, she could get it, him to really commit to just coming here and giving her a chance. Something was booming and crashing outside. If he would just give her even a few minutes, she might... The picture window at the front of the motel room heaved itself inward and sprayed broken glass over her as if the battering ram of muddy water had been deliberately fletched with shards. But she couldn't scream because her mouth was full of brown water and she was being shoved up against the wall, pressed into a corner, the water f quickly filling the room, pouring through the window like a damned spillway, turning the motel room into a whirlpool, the water crashing around and rising, rising to her neck, making the TV crackle and the dresser lift up and dance around. The mattress whipped around to suck against the window, and the mattress blocked the window for a moment so that the pushing water subsided to an angry back-and-forthing. 
Trying to wake up from this nightmare, uh, Nella saw a dead cat swirling, all tangled with kelp and the clothes from her suitcase, her best clothes almost indistinguishable from muddy sand. And then the wall started to crack and lean bulgingly inward, and then outward, and then inward, like cheeks inside a panting mouth. And the door just exploded outward, and she found herself flying headlong, her whole body drawn in by an unrelenting suction, uh, her left shoulder cracking hard against the splintered frame as she bounced through. She was swept out, whirled underwater into dirty brown darkness, and then she popped up like a cork into the air, coughing, uh, just another part of the sodded, uh, blended, filthy medium the world had become. Ocean everywhere, ocean and debris, and a school bus that seemed to be swimming like an orange whale dragged along in the flood. The flood. The phrase, biblical flood, came into her mind. The two words almost shouted in her head, and she remembered Bible lessons with her folks in Winnipeg, and how withdrawn and angry they'd been when she'd ask, but how could that happen if... <laughs> and how they hadn't let her eat for two days, not anything to punish her for lack of faith. When she tried to slip down to the kitchen, her father caught her, dragged her by the neck back to her room. And now Nella was being hustled by another unstoppable force as if Papa was dragging her through the filthy rolling water 30 feet deep where the parking lot had been. She felt her bare right foot slapped by what was probably a car antenna jutting from beneath, other cars and vans all crookedly surfacing before sinking again. A blue-haired old lady in a torn nightgown was scrabbling at a floating mattress with long red fingernails, uh, trying to climb onto it. The mattress tipped her back into the water, and she sank gurgling and didn't come back up. The Mexican woman who cleaned the rooms drifted by, face down, the back of her head bashed in, hair matted and wet. The old Indian guy who ran the motel office went by, clinging to a big piece of styrofoam, staring at her with a dull shock, but she realized almost triumph, too. And she looked away from him at the sky to see if God was looking down. She saw nothing but the quite ordinary gray sky. And when she looked back at the old Indian guy, he was gone, and she was suddenly aware that the water was cold. She'd been too stunned to notice the temperature before, but she felt as if the uncontrollable chattering of her teeth announced it. And she was sure now that this wasn't a dream. Remembering the passage from Genesis about the flood sent by the angry Jehovah that her parents had read to her many times, the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Nella couldn't think about anything else after that. There was no room for it because a steep wave had knocked her under, tumbling her, and she was choking. She opened her eyes and saw the world had gone brown-black. She was under a layer of obscene chocolate. Looking up at a ceiling made of the rippling murk, she was afloat in a lower level of translucent green water, lit by light shafting through breaks in the murk overhead. Bits of wood drifted up and down. A refrigerator was slowly sinking its door open, and a ray of light coming through a hole in the surface scum spotlit a child floating upside down about 30 feet away. A pale-haired girl, who must surely be dead, her limp arms splayed, and a little lower several overturned sedans, seeming colorless where finding their own level. Blankets swept from the motel, 
had become aquatic creatures billowing like jellyfish. Nella felt she should let go and die, but she couldn't. She kicked and clawed at the water, trying to climb a ladder that wasn't there. Kicking, kicking, seemed to take forever to ascend into the brown layer, into opacity, pushing splintery debris out of the way, getting tangled with rubber-coated wire, fighting free. Then she was thrusting her head out of the dirty water, gasping, clasping a floating crate and spitting foulness. The crate was pretty buoyant, and she pulled it down between her legs so she could ride it like a horse, keeping her head and shoulders above briny waters, stinking of sewage and oil. She saw another body floating by, face down, a man vanishing under waves that twitched every which way. Her teeth clacked like castanets in the cold water. She kicked her feet, instinctively trying to get to the place where the water slapped against the hill above the sunken motel. But the sea was still surging, sucking her the other way, towards crackling, sparking debris. She f saw an electrical cable hanging down from a leaning pole, the cable wriggling and snapping like an angry snake. She didn't want to be electrocuted, and if she got close enough, the water would transmit the electricity and she'd be fried in shit water. She wriggled the crate up, clinging as if it were a beach toy in her bruised arms, and she kicked crazy hard, rasping out, No, 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 not gonna, no! The words almost stuck in her caked throat. Little by little, she was making her way through the churning, thrashing, along toward a tree to one side of the motel near the hillside, a pushed-over oak tree, some of its roots sticking up at the sky like the tentacles of a giant wooden squid. She was heading for it, trying to keep to the left of a big morass of random floating items, a small car on its side, a couple of spare tires, overturned plastic coolers, and a great deal of jagged timber. There was a man in there, a naked man, with a spike of wood, a giant splinter right through his body under his right nipple, and he was feebly trying to pull himself up on a higher chunk of floating wood. He vomited blood and fell back and tried to thrash up again, but the turbulent water slapped him down and he vanished in the churning swell. Spitting blood herself from a, spit, a split lip, she looked away, focused on the roots of the oak tree and kept kicking towards it, past the motel. She glanced to one side to see that the top of the motel was covered in brown sucking water, but someone was clinging to the 1960s style sign above the roof. A crying, heavy-set, middle-aged woman with her red hair pasted down. She was wearing only a brassiere, her white ass looking doughy. Someone else was screaming behind Nella, near that sparking cable, and suddenly the scream cut off. And then Nella had almost reached those roots, twisting upward toward the sky, the gray kelp twine tree trunk revolving slowly in the water, a naked man clinging farther up. Why was everyone naked? She saw people watching up on the hill above her, standing on dry ground up there on some house's back deck about 30 yards over the dirty, invasive new breakers, and she recognized them. It was Dickie Rockwell, Rock, it was Dickie Rockwell and Mark Sten and the Grumman brothers. They were passing a bottle and laughing at her. That's it. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.